Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer, where we discuss today's best ideas in personal finance and investing. The Best Interest is a personal podcast meant for entertainment purposes only. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation. Here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome back to the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. It has been a few months since I've gotten behind the podcast mic, and uh, yeah, you know, for some good reason, at least I think so. Back in September, I went to FinCon in Austin, and I was inspired by a ton of cool ideas about different directions to potentially take the podcast. So I wanted to pause for a little bit and brainstorm some ideas, give that some thought. And then in parallel with that, I've recently gone through a pretty cool career change. Was an engineer full-time, Now I'm working in uh, the financial planning wealth management industry full-time for an RIA, a registered investment advisor here in Rochester. And so I wanted to understand a little bit more about what my career would look like. I wanted to flesh that out a little bit before I continued on my podcasting journey. I still am not 100% sure where the podcast will end up, what it will look like in a month, in a year from now. But uh, I was inspired to get behind the mic today and just chat a little bit. Uh, Some people on Twitter offered up some topics they wanted me to talk about. I've got some topics that I thought of on my own that I I think are cool to talk about. So this is just going to be a little bit of a Ask Me Anything slash Jesse Talks About Money Ideas episode. Okay. Topic one, inflation. Inflation uh, is the headline du jour. Everybody's talking about inflation. Inflation numbers for December came out. I think they were maybe around 7%. And that means year over year, about a 7% growth. If you compare uh, December of 2020 against December of 2021, the CPI, which is the Consumer Price Index, grew by about 7%. Yeah, personally, I see it. My grocery bill is up. My gasoline bill is up. Outside of that, I'm sure there are expenses that are that are higher than last year. They're a little bit hard to see. They're not quite as noticeable. Uh, so the CPI, though, it, it measures a, a basket of goods, they say. They look at the, the prices for a whole bunch of different goods, and the weighted average of those cost increases is about 7%. So some things in the basket are way more affected than other things in that basket. good example would be uh, housing and cars. So housing and cars right now, if you compare their prices to December of 2020, they are way higher than just 7% above where they were last year. So so if I were buying a house right now, which I'm not, then uh, inflation would have a an extra large effect on me. If I were buying a car right now, which I'm not, but I might be soon, then inflation would have a, a heavy effect on me. So it really depends the way if inflation affects you personally. Uh, it really depends on what you're spending money on right now. It takes all of my money just to eat and pay my rent. I got the blues. Got those inflation blues. Um, next topic, the 2021 stock market. So 2021 was about a, a 90th percentile year in the stock market. No matter how you cut the cake, whether it's overall returns whether it's the lack of volatility, whether it's the lack of any big uh, drop, any big decline in the market. 
2021 was a 90th or 95th percentile year, a great year. And it was a great time to be an investor. I mean, right now the economy is hot. Uh, unemployment is low. Businesses are thriving, right? Their earnings, uh, business earnings, corporate earnings, corporate revenues for 2021 were at historic highs. Um, the Federal Reserve policies are certainly helping that right now. But if you're not aware, there's strong speculation that those policies might soon reverse or might soon change. What are those Federal Reserve policies? So right now, it's very easy to borrow money at low cost. The Federal Reserve sets that rate and then banks fall in line underneath or, or above that rate. Okay, so what does that rate mean? That rate means it's very easy right now to borrow money for next to no cost. And for that reason, it's hard to find a good investment return right now from one of those low-risk assets, something like a treasury bond. If you wanted to go out and buy a treasury bond, you would get something like a one-year or a 1% annual return for a 10-year bond. In fact, I can look it up right now. Right now, the 10-year treasury is yielding 1.793%, about 1.8% per year. So that's the risk-free, that's the that's the 10-year risk-free rate. I know that the more commonly quoted risk-free rate is for the three-month treasury, and that right now is at about 0.12%, a tenth of a percent, 12, 12 basis points. Okay, so it's hard to find a very low-risk investment right now that has any sort of good return. Plus, it's easy right now to borrow money at a cheap rate. So those two facts are intrinsically tied together, right? They, they have the same cause, which is the Federal Reserve's interest rate policy. And those two facts are also both leading investors to pour more money into the stock market, okay? It's easy to borrow money for cheap, and it's hard to find a low-risk investment. Therefore, more money is getting poured into the stock market, and that's why stock prices go up. But it's also why, in the long run, stock returns don't look that appealing because the stock prices are so high. Part of investing is finding assets that will return a good yield over the long run for a reasonable price. Now, stocks, companies, businesses, they might have strong revenues for the next 5, 10, 15 years. But if you're overpaying for them today, then that investment isn't that good. The metaphor that I'd like to use is, is let's think about cars. A Honda Civic is a great car. It's reliable, good gas mileage, gets you from point A to point B. And if you can buy a new Honda Civic for $15,000, $20,000, maybe even $25,000, that, that's probably a good deal. That's probably a good investment. But if someone came in and wanted to charge you $50,000 for a Honda Civic, well, you'd probably say no. It doesn't mean that the Civic isn't a good car. It just means that at that price, it's not a smart investment. And there might be something similar going on with the stock market in general right now, or at least that's what happens to stock markets, to markets in general, when money is easy and when uh, assets get, get priced up. What you end up seeing is that certain companies are being priced kind of like an overpriced Honda Civic. Some investors right now are paying $50,000 for a $25,000 car. And in the long run, that will, that will bite them. That will bite them. They will see that they won't get a return on their investment. Even if the company ends up being a quote-unquote good company over the long run, even if the company has strong revenues, even if the company pays strong dividends, 
if you pay too much for it up front, it's, it's not a great investment. Okay, well, what happens if the Federal Reserve reverses some of their policies and they increase interest rates? Now, that's something that we hear might happen in the next few months. Uh, Part of the reason why is that the economy is so hot right now, is so stimulated. There's so much money moving around the economy, which is good. That is good. It keeps everybody employed. It keeps everybody uh, with paychecks coming in. It's also one of the causes of high inflation. The Federal Reserve wants to help us on the inflationary front. One thing they could do is increase interest rates, right? It makes it harder to borrow money. It's more expensive to borrow money. Businesses in general slow down. The economy slows down a little bit. You don't want to have a hyperactive economy. So if the Federal Reserve reverses some of those policies, if interest rates go up, we will likely see money leave the stock market. Businesses will have lower returns in the future. They'll have uh, lower revenues in the future. Uh, New issuances of treasury bonds will become more appealing because the interest rates are higher. There'll be a higher guaranteed return on those treasury bonds, giving stocks more competition for investors' dollars. Less demand for stocks will lead to lower stock prices. But lower stock prices, if you zoom out 10, 20 years, lower stock prices will tend to lead to better stock returns because investors will be paying a more appropriate price for those stocks today. So in the short run, we're inclined to feel like a hike in interest rates is a bad thing. We're going to see our investing dollars go down. Uh, headlines will be, have a big frowny face on them. But, but that's just a short-term thinking. In the long run, it's likely a good thing. Uh, in the long run, it's likely going to stabilize the economy. Hopefully, it will reduce inflation. And if you're a stock market investor, if you're a dollar cost average investor, someone who's retiring in 20 years and putting away a little bit each paycheck into your 401k, shouldn't bother you too much that the stock market might go down today or this week or this month or this year, right? Your, your, your goals are 10, 20, 30 years out in the future. You wouldn't mind a lower stock market right now. So if that happens, if the U.S. Treasury, or I'm sorry, if the U.S. Federal Reserve lowers interest rates, don't be surprised if stocks fall in 2022. This isn't a macro prediction, right? A million different things could happen. Uh, But this is just one potential cause and effect that sounds like is likely to happen in 2022. Uh, But don't look at that as a bad thing, right? Keep a long-term view. It's just part of the process. Uh, I like thinking about new fun analogies, kind of like my Honda Civic analogy and, and fun metaphors. One thing I think about is the fact that we've had 12 years of mostly sunny, beautiful skies in the stock market. It's been a gorgeous day. A change in Fed policy, it might bring about a rainstorm for a few months or a year or a couple years. I don't know, but it might get a little stormy. But then I ask myself, is a storm so bad? I don't think so. It's a storm is normal. The rain brings new life with it. So just batten down the hatches, make yourself a, a cup of tea, ignore the gusts of wind outside, ignore the the shower, the rain showers battering your windows, because we know that in a bear market, there will be plenty of blustering and fear, right? With a bear market comes all those negative headlines. With a storm comes some wind and some rain. We'll just ride out the storm. 
because tomorrow the sun is probably going to come back out. Your, your grass outside is going to be thankful that that rain came through and gave it necessary water overnight. It's, it's just the weather. It's just part of the weather. It's part of the natural cycle of weather, just like bear, bull and bear markets are part of the natural cycle of, of capital markets. It's all part of the process. Riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. Into this house we're born. Um, I was asked to talk a little bit about international and emerging markets, or I guess what, what my personal views are on international and emerging markets. So if you didn't know, uh, you can probably find an index fund wherever you invest, and that index fund will specialize in international and or emerging markets. The international term sometimes refers to anything that's outside of the U.S., but is a relatively developed economy. Think something like England, Japan, um, Germany, most of the Western, most of Western Europe falls in that boat, Canada. Uh, and then maybe they contrast that with emerging markets. Emerging markets are, are newer economies, uh, something that maybe, maybe 50 years ago was still part of the third world and 25 years ago was getting itself out of the third world. And now is, is that economy is trying to find its way into the first world. People like to invest in international and emerging markets for a couple of reasons. One, it provides some sort of diversity to your overall investment portfolio because international and emerging markets tend to be uncorrelated in some form or fashion, tend to be uncorrelated with U.S. markets. And for that reason, it, from a portfolio management, portfolio theory point of view, it's nice to have uncorrelated assets in your portfolio. When some are going up, others tend to be going down. When some are going down, others tend to be going up. It reduces your overall portfolio volatility. That's the whole reason why people preach diversity. That whole, you know, you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket. At the end of the day, your, your portfolio becomes a lot more stable if you have different eggs in different baskets. And especially as you approach retirement, it's nice to have a stable portfolio. It's no fun if you're, if you're making or losing millions of dollars in a very short time span when you're trying to plan for your retirement. It's a little stressful. So anyway, what do I think about international and emerging markets? Yes, some of my investing dollars are in an international stock index fund for the reason that I, I laid out before. It's part of a diverse portfolio construction. I learned that through reading books like A Boglehead's Guide to Investing and A Random Walk Down Wall Street. Some modern investment thinking suggests that having 100% of your money in U.S. stocks provides all the international exposure you need. And I'll pause and I'm going to say that again. Some modern investment thinking suggests that having 100% of your money in U.S. stocks provides all of the international exposure that you need. So it's, it's a weird sentence. Own nothing but U.S. stocks, yet get exposure to, to international economies and international business. And how does that happen? Well, let's look at a company like Coca-Cola. Coke is a U.S. stock, yet only 35% of Coke's revenue comes from North America. Outside of that, the other 65% comes from a couple little subsidiary businesses, but it's mostly from international sales. It's an international corporation. Its profits are subject to the economic forces and the governmental policies of the rest of the world. Now, there are tons of companies just like Coke. They're U.S.-based companies. They have U.S. headquarters. They're listed on the U.S. stock market. And yet they have significant exposure 
to international economies and international marketplaces. So the argument goes, if you want exposure to international markets, if you want exposure to emerging markets, you can just own those U.S. companies, those international U.S. companies. So why not just own a total U.S. stock market index? Now, it, it makes sense. I, I get the argument. It does make sense. Now, personally, I'm not spending 60 hours a week on investment analysis, digging into this kind of stuff. So I don't really have a strong opinion one way or the other. That is to say, if you want to get international exposure, I don't have a particularly strong opinion between owning an international fund versus owning a U.S. fund that has international companies in it. I'm just trying to understand the arguments and describe to you guys listening what those arguments are. Personally, I am content with my strategy, which is owning an international stock index that fund owns German-based companies and UK-based companies and Japanese and Korean, and it owns all these companies that are based in those other countries outside of the U.S. I also own a U.S. stock index with companies just like Coca-Cola inside of it, where I'm getting additional international exposure. And at the end of the day, I think it's an interesting argument, or if you want to call it a debate, sure, go ahead, call it a debate. But I'm not sure it's that fruitful of a debate. I think we're splitting hairs. If there's a difference between the two strategies, I think it's probably a small difference. And I think both strategies will likely provide the long-term investing success that you're hoping a diverse stock portfolio will provide. Okay, next topic. Yes, uh, I wanted to touch on my career change a little bit. Pretty exciting. Uh, it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's exciting and evolving. So for the last seven years, I was a mechanical engineer working on uh, satellite telescopes. And for the last three years, I've been running the best interest as a, a, uh, a time-consuming side hobby and small business. You know, it's, it's been earning some revenue over the last year, the last 18 months. And most recently, within the last three or four months, I uh, started having some conversations with some local financial planners, local wealth management firms, looking for ways that I could go even more, dedicate even more time to this passion of mine, which is personal finance, investing, helping people with their financial goals. And uh, yeah, I ended up getting a job with a really cool firm here in Rochester that's an RIA. It's a registered investment advisor. It's a fiduciary, meaning it's, it's legally uh, bound to act in its client's best interests, which, hey, the best interest, you know, that appeals to me. So I think uh, it's a really cool company. We do really good work with interesting clients. We help people reach their financial goals and we reduce their financial stress along the way. So those are things that I really believe in. You know, some people out there, they want to do all their financial work themselves. Totally get it. I mean, personally, right? I do most of my financial work myself. I'm very hands-on with my finances. I want to know how the math works. I want to know why the math works. I want to know why decisions make sense for me or don't make sense for me. It's one of the reasons why I enjoy talking into this microphone and typing on this keyboard is to explain how and why things should make sense to you. But one thing I've realized in my work with the best interest is that very few people have as much of an interest in personal finance and investing as I do, or have as much interest as some of my other blogging and podcasting friends do. 
Now, see, the average person, they care very much about their hard-earned dollars. They care very much about hitting their retirement goals, about setting their children up for success, about leaving money behind for their children. They care very much about retiring to that cute little house in Florida and only spending the summertime in New York. P.S. There's a foot and a half of snow outside right now. The average person cares about their financial goals, but the math and the spreadsheets and the tax codes and the planning, those things either don't interest them at all or intimidate them or some combination of both, right? I find this stuff interesting. Very few other people find it interesting. We all find the goals interesting, but the process, the process itself, many people say, I want help with the process. In some form or function, I want help with the process. Well, I enjoy helping people, and that's what I'll be doing with my new job, which is really exciting for me. I'll be helping people with the process of getting them from point A to day, where they say, I have these goals, I know where I want to be, but man, the process scares the SHIT out of me. Well, I'm going to hold their hand and say, this is fine. Let's get you through the process. I'll explain to you anything that you want explained. Or if you really don't care to have it explained and you just want to see at the end of the year where you stand and where we think you'll be in five years and 10 years and 20 years, we can do that too. Hands on, hands off. It's your call as the client. But uh, either way, we're helping you get to your goals. That's pretty cool. That's what I'll be doing. That's why I'm excited about this career change and seeing what's ahead. Yeah, just wanted to give you guys a little update on that. Winter, spring, summer, or fall. All you got to do is call And I'll be there, yeah, yeah, yeah You've got a friend Next topic, uh, DeFi, decentralized finance, the new era of cryptocurrency, Web3, NFTs, all that stuff. Just wanted to touch on it. Now, I follow this stuff on the internet. I do my best, which is to say, you know, a couple hours a week, I'm reading articles, trying to understand the newest trends. Other people right now are dedicating their lives to this stuff, to the cryptocurrency space and the decentralized finance space and, and, uh, web three NFTs. It's like watching a volcano erupt. That that's what I think right now, watching the NFT space or just watching, I should say watching the crypto space right now is like watching a volcano erupt. You, you think that it's in all within your view, right? And, and maybe if you're far enough away, you can kind of look at it and be like, oh, it's, it's all there. But then the closer you get to it, you realize, A, um, it's absolute chaos. <laughs> and B, uh, there is more growth going on than you can possibly consume. It's overwhelming growth. Um, so if you want to, you can zoom in on one little part of the explosion and try to get a really good view of that. But it's really hard to zoom in on all parts of the explosion and have a really good understanding of that. So you can either kind of go through the wide lens view where you're zoomed out, or you can do the narrow view where you're zoomed in. There's just so much happening. And from that point of view, it also means, in my opinion, that there's uh, plenty of opportunities for some legitimate projects. There are many opportunities for illegitimate projects, which is another way of saying scams, grifts, those kind of things. Um, so it's just confusing. It's just a confusing space. It's something that I'm watching, but I have no uh, monetary interest in. 
I just, I don't, you know, should I buy an NFT? Should I buy a bored ape? Some of you right now might not know what a bored ape is. A bored ape is a, I mean, how do I even describe what a bored ape is? I'm not, I'm not sure I can just Google bored ape yacht club. So anyway, bored ape yacht club, NFTs, uh, people are spending half a million dollars on an NFT, a non-fungible token of an ape, of a picture of an ape. And there's side effects to it. You get access to this club. You get you get some exclusive things on the blockchain. And on the one hand, I look at it and say, okay, it's it's kind of like being a member of the Pablo Picasso art club. You know, Pablo Picasso, he only made a, a limited number of paintings. And if you own the painting, well, you, you can be in a club with other people who own paintings and it's probably pretty cool. But with NFTs, you know, it's just, it it starts to boggle the mind because you can say, oh, well, why doesn't another Picasso come along in NFT space and make their own apes? Which by the way, tons of people are doing. And it it reminds me in some way of the, uh, the car industry in the early 1900s. There were something, there were like hundreds, if not thousands of individual car companies all around the United States. You know, there was the the Rochester car company. And then there was the the greater Syracuse automobile company and Buffalo had three and all these different car companies of, of people legitimately trying to build a better car. Capitalism at work, business people, entrepreneurs wanting to build cars to fill the consumer need. By 1950, there were basically three big car companies um, in the U S and they, and they dominated the U S car industry for, for decades. There was General Motors, Ford, and Daimler Chrysler. That's it. That's it. Three big car companies. Everything got consolidated. All those brands that you've heard of, you know, Dodge and Plymouth, they all fell under one of the big three. Now there's Toyota and Hyundai and Kia. There, there's some new kids on the block, but still you have something like 10 car companies in the entire world, 12 major car companies in the entire world. And I just, I have to think that in some way, that consolidation is going to happen in the cryptocurrency space. So what does that mean? Well, it means it's really hard to know what cryptocurrency projects to invest in right now, at least in my opinion, because five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, which ones are going to be left? Which car companies at the beginning of the 1900s should you have invested in? I mean, yeah, if you invested in Ford and General Motors, you would have done extremely well for yourself. But if you invested in the Rochester Car Company, that thing might've gotten, you know, shot out of business by the 1930s and you would have $0 to show for your investment in it. I think there's something similar with crypto, or at least that's, that's how I view it and and why I choose to, uh, to watch the volcano exploding without really, uh, getting too close to it because, uh, yeah, I think some, some projects are going to get obliterated by the ongoing explosion and, uh, other, other projects might make it out clean. And then there's this, overshadowing question in the whole crypto space that is still on my mind despite uh despite everything i've learned about crypto despite the fact that i have some money in uh ethereum and bitcoin mutual funds through uh grayscale through a company called grayscale i own i have exposure to bitcoin and ethereum and i still have this question on my mind which is underneath it all is there a intrinsic value proposition. When you own a stock, what you really own is a business. And that business is trying to generate profits by creating a product that its customers want. It's 
customers will pay for the product. The company will generate revenue from the customer's payments. Some of that revenue will be profits. Some of those profits get shared with me, the stockholder, and thus the stock has this intrinsic revenue engine to me, and that's intrinsic value. That's what the intrinsic value is. By owning a stock, I own a business. The business will give me some of its profits year over year over year over year from now to infinity. And that's why I pay for a stock. And that's why other people will pay for stock. And that's why stock has value. Okay, now let's do that for cryptocurrency. It gets a lot harder to do. I own a Bitcoin. Okay, that's good. Is owning a Bitcoin, am I going to generate profits year over year over year over year by owning Bitcoin? I'm not sure. I don't think I am. I think what I'm hoping with Bitcoin is that next year, there's more demand for Bitcoin than there is this year. And that might be true, that in 10 years and 20 years and 50 years, there's way more demand for Bitcoin than there is right now. Why would that happen? Well, because we expect economies all over the world to start using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. I think that's the reason why. That's the reason that I've heard. It might happen. It seems to be happening more and more. Same thing goes for Ethereum, that we expect people, economies all over the world to start using the Ethereum blockchain as some sort of store of value or some sort of exchange of value to start designing programs on the Ethereum blockchain and to start uh, designing their own sub coins on the Ethereum blockchain that solve specific problems. When you solve problems, then all of a sudden you provide value. When you provide value, something has, has, has value to investors and thus Investors have a reason to pour their money into that investment. So again, that's what we're hoping happens with Ethereum and Bitcoin. At least that's my understanding of it. But will that happen? So I kind of uh, digressed down the rabbit hole, as it were. Those are just some thoughts I have on DeFi and, uh, and cryptocurrency in general. I think it's interesting. I pay attention to it. I try to understand it. There's way more to understand than I could possibly grasp in my limited time. And for that, among a couple other reasons, I choose to more or less not invest. But if you have another opinion on it, let me let me know what you think. My friends over at TikTok Life, cool blog, by the way. TikTok Life. If you haven't checked it out, Jenny and Chris, they're young. Uh, they retired early. I think they're in their mid-30s. They retired early. They write cool articles. I, I enjoy their writing style and I enjoy what they choose to write about. They just have a cool, cool mindset and some cool thoughts to share when it comes to uh, being retired early, when it comes to their investment philosophy, which is, you know, a very index fundy philosophy. And they, uh, they wanted me to talk about what they called surprise dividends, which they, uh, which came about for them. It sounds like because they were holding index funds in uh, taxable accounts, and yeah, that that can happen to anybody. When you have investments in a taxable account, you might get surprised by some dividends from time to time. It's a good surprise, and and in some cases, it can be a a bad surprise. It sounds like that's what Jenny and Chris were alluding to. But let, real quick, so let's talk about right taxable accounts versus uh, tax-advantaged accounts. So right now, 
Uh, some of you listening in the USA, you might have a 401k. You might have a Roth IRA. Those are tax-advantaged accounts. When you hold an index fund in one of those accounts, every year, the stocks inside that index fund, those businesses, might be paying a dividend. The dividend goes to the fund, and a portion of that total dividend gets passed on to you, the investor. But because you're holding that investment in a tax-advantaged account, you don't have to pay any taxes on those dividends. That's not true if you have a taxable brokerage account, which some people have in addition to their tax-advantaged accounts. I have a taxable brokerage account. Every year, the investments in my taxable brokerage account might be paying me a dividend. You know, each company has the option of paying a dividend or not, and dividends are taxable. So if I get $1,000 worth of dividends in my taxable brokerage account, uh, Fidelity will send me a 1099 form saying, hey, Jesse, you got $1,000 of dividends, and I have to pay taxes on them according to U.S. tax code dividend policies. Some dividends you have to pay more taxes on than others. There are a few rules and regulations behind behind which dividends you pay taxes on and how much. So uh, it sounds like uh, TikTok life. It sounds like Jenny and Chris they were holding uh, some index funds in a taxable brokerage account, which totally makes sense, right? If you hit your investment limits in your tax advantage account, it makes a lot of sense to open a taxable account to then continue investing. But you might get hit with a dividend-related tax bill at the end of the year. If you're prepared for it, it's fine. You, you keep some money in cash in your bank account dedicated for that tax bill, and when it comes time to pay, you pay the tax bill. No worries. But sometimes you can get surprised. You can get caught off guard. Let's say you have a million dollars in a taxable brokerage account, which I am far away from there, but, but some of you listening might not be far away from there at all. You have a million dollars. Uh, you own an index fund that, on average, the index fund has a 3% dividend yield over the course of the year. That means that you got $30,000 in dividends over the course of the year. And depending on whether they're qualified dividends or not, depending on your tax bracket, you might pay something like a 15 or 20% rate on those dividends. So what's 20% of a three of a $30,000 dividend? 20% is six grand. So you might have a six grand tax bill on those dividends. If you aren't prepared for it, if you didn't have six grand sitting on the sidelines waiting for that tax bill, well, shit, you might end up selling a bit of your million dollars in stock to help pay for the tax bill. It's not the end of the world, but most investors I know would prefer not to sell stock in order to pay taxes in that way. You are interrupting compounding unnecessarily, which is something that Charlie Munger warns us against. So that's probably the downside, or that's probably the real surprise that Chris and Jenny were talking about when they asked me to talk about a surprise dividend tax bill. It's that you want to have money set aside. You want to prepare for it ahead of time to know, oh, I'm going to have a $6,000 tax bill at the end of the year. I'm going to keep some cash here so that when it comes, I'll pay it with that cash rather than having to sell your investments to, to cover the tax bill. You can buy her a pair of hose, a little powder for her nose. Take her down to Sloppy Joe's for beer and stew. Them are the facts. Uh, what else? What else? Recommendations? Any other thoughts? Random stuff from my personal life? 
I'm using an app called Noom. That's pretty cool. N-O-O-M. Noom. Uh, it's a diet app. It's a it's helping me. It's helping me make better food choices. It's encouraging me to track my weight day by day with the goal of uh, being healthier. Well, first off, just over the long term, being healthier uh, and looking good on my wedding day. Getting married in September of 2022. Pretty excited for that. We're wedding planning right now. Wedding planning is quite involved if you haven't done it yet. But anyway, using this app called Noom, not sponsored by them at all. But uh, so far, it's good. I enjoy the app. Uh, their whole thing is uh, helping you with psychology, helping you with a psychology of food choices and, and all that jazz. And uh, I'm a big psychology guy. I enjoy reading about psychology. I think there's a huge aspect of psychology in personal finance and investing, right? Our brains, our brains are so much more important than we maybe think they are. Um, or if you think your brain is important, you're probably underestimating its importance. So anyway, uh, Noom helps my brain make better decisions with food. So far, so good. So far, so good. Down a few pounds since starting it and uh, just got to stick with it. Keep on keeping on. It's a long-term journey. Uh, and yeah, it's actually funny. There are so many parallels, I think, between uh, food and dieting and weight loss. So many parallels between that and personal finance and budgeting and investing and Anyway, it's it's cool. It's it's helping my brain. Uh, it's helping me. It's helping my health. Right at the end of the day, an investment in health. It's hard to beat an investment in health. Uh, would you rather be a billionaire who dies at forty, or a comfortable middle class, potentially millionaire who dies at ninety? I think everybody would probably choose to die at ninety. But anyway, that's just an opinion. Noom, Noom, interesting, interesting app check it out. Uh, other stuff, you know, one article that I read a few weeks ago that I've really, uh, sent to a lot of people shared with a lot of people is called no more side quests. It's by a guy named Josh Brown who runs, uh, Ritholtz wealth management. If you're a money nerd, you might know Josh Brown. If you're not a money nerd, you might not have heard of him, but I'm going to link that article in the show notes. I highly recommend, I think it's probably a five minute read. No more side quests. And then also, you know, a lot more people have heard of uh, Morgan Housel, who wrote a book called The Psychology of Money. Morgan recently wrote an article called Does Not Compute. That was uh, that was really good. And it's been shared around a little bit. You know, I, I found out about it because other people were sharing it. And the idea behind Does Not Compute is that when you look at when you look at the world in general and when you look at investment markets specifically, there are some things that are going to be so irrational that it does not compute for your rational mind. And your first your first instinct, the first instinct of all humans, speaking of psychology, when, when something does not compute to our rational minds, we reject it. And we say, you know what? It's clearly irrational. I don't get it. It must be bullshit. Morgan's argument in this article is that just because something does not compute with you doesn't mean that it's wrong. It might mean that the world is irrational. That is the way the world is. And you're better off trying to understand that irrationality than rejecting that irrationality. Because at the end of the day, the irrationality is real. You can reject it if you want, but it's kind of like an ostrich sticking its head in the sand. We know it's not rational. We know it does not compute with our rational minds, but it's still real. 
you're better off accepting reality for what it is than rejecting reality for what it isn't. So anyway, I'll link that as well. Does Not Compute by Morgan Housel. Uh, Books, on the book's point of view, I actually haven't read a finance book in a few months, but I did recently read a great psychology book. It's called Influence by Robert Cialdini. It's a book that um, I think was written in the 80s, maybe in the 90s. And as you read that book, you are going to realize that he predicted social media two decades before social media existed. Like that book is a blueprint for the way social media works in terms of things going viral, in terms of people liking and sharing and commenting and retweeting and and why it affects our brain the way it does, the way people sell on social media. Anyway, if you are involved in any sort of practice where you're trying to convince another person of an idea, it might be sales. It might be, it might be a leadership position where you're, you're just leading a team of people. It might be that you're a content creator, kind of someone like me, someone who's writing or podcasting. Either way, this book, Influence, I think will, will open your eyes to the way the world can work in, the, in marketing and advertising and selling and those kind of things. And yeah, even if you're not involved in any of those roles, I do think that it's a very interesting book. It'll open your eyes to the way your own brain works and the way that marketing works on you. That, that's a subject I've written about recently, the way marketing works on me. Now, I know that social media works on me. I, I can feel it. As in, I can feel when uh, I can see it firsthand when I get sucked down the rabbit hole of YouTube and I spend, you know, 45 minutes watching random videos on YouTube. That is social media working on me. That is the design of YouTube working on my monkey brain the way YouTube intended it to, right? I'm a sucker for their algorithm. My monkey brain cannot handle it and it, it falls victim to their wily ways, okay? Social media works on me. Similarly, uh, food design works on me. What I mean by that is that many of our foods today are designed with specific amounts of, of fat and sugar and salt in them to make them uh, perfectly appealing to us. And yes, I eat fat and sugar and salt. It works on my monkey brain, right? Potato chips didn't exist out on the savannah, but if they did, you better believe that our ancestors would have been looking for those potato chips because they are packed with important calories and energy and they taste delicious. Well, guess what? I can go get potato chips at the grocery store. And when I do, I eat them all because my monkey brain has been, if you want to call it addicted, call it addicted to sugar and fat and salt. Okay. Marketing, I think, is the same. Just like social media, just like food design, marketing works on my monkey brain. I just can't always put a finger on how. And that's a little scary. What I mean by that is, you know, why did I buy this Apple computer that I'm recording into right now? Why did I buy a Toyota car and not a Ford or not a Honda? Why do I make the purchasing decisions that I make? I would like to believe that I'm autonomous and I make them of my own accord. Thanks for that, Sadie. But I think because of the way I know my brain is a victim, Sadie, stop barking. Because of the way that I know my brain can be tricked 
for lack of a better term, by social media and food, I know my brain can also be tricked by marketing. I know that I can make purchasing decisions based on some external force that I don't even realize is there. And this book by Robert Cialdini reinforces that idea in me, that marketers out there, there's a ton of them. There are a ton of marketers, and they're really smart, and they know how human brains work. And you better believe that they design their advertisements, they design their email campaigns, they design their TV commercials to tweak and trick and pull and tug and push on your human psychology and on my human psychology. And it might not be very obvious how they're doing it, but over the long haul, they are influencing us, just like Robert Cialdini would say. They are influencing us in some way to likely make purchasing decisions. It's hard to figure out how they're doing it. It's hard to pinpoint how they're doing it. But if you're aware that it's happening somewhere in your subconscious, I'm convinced you're likely going to make better purchasing decisions in the long run. You're going to start asking yourself questions like, oh, why do I really want this Tesla so bad? Is it for a whole bunch of rational reasons? Maybe. Or is there some sort of irrational marketing uh, reason involved? That is quite possible too. Why do you want the $200 Nike shoes instead of the more reasonably priced $40 off-brand shoes? Is there a marketing influence involved? Probably. So it's those kind of things that the book Influence might make you think of, and uh, that's why it's my recommendation. Okay, guys, that is a long-winded episode. That's a lot of my voice to listen to. If you listen to the whole thing, thank you. Really appreciate you guys being here. It's fun getting back behind the podcast mic. And uh, and let me know. You know, if, if, if you enjoyed this, if you liked listening to it, let me know. Drop me a line uh, if you're on Twitter at bestinterest underscore JC. Or you can email me, jesse at bestinterest.blog. Let me know what you think. Uh, because it would be fun. It'd be fun to start doing this again, assuming uh, my time allows, assuming that my my new career path allows that to happen. And uh, and as always, yeah, send me your questions. I enjoy answering your questions. I enjoy riffing off them and, and talking into the mic and writing about them. Because uh, after all, you know, at the end of the day, life is nothing but a big question and answer. We are looking to build our, our knowledge base because as Benjamin Franklin said, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. So thank you for listening to this episode number 38 of the Best Interest Podcast. <laughs>